We are going to jump right in and finish up our study of Daniel 11 this morning, which will leave us with just one final chapter of Daniel remaining. On your handout, you have a quick review of what we've been seeing here in Daniel chapter 11. So if you take a moment and look at that with me. Daniel 11 verses 2 through 20. Overview certain political events from about 600 to 175 BC. And they end up focusing on civil war within the divided Greek empire from about 325 to 175 BC. And then the next 15 verses, after those verses fly by a lot of rulers, the next 15 verses describe just one, the Greek ruler Antiochus IV in the 160s BC. So we talked about verses 2 through 35 last week. So now this week, verses 36 through 39 describe the king who sounds similar to Antiochus IV, yet different. And then verses 40 through 45 describe the end of that king, and he is clearly not Antiochus IV. And then in a future sermon, we'll start into chapter 12. And the beginning of chapter 12 says that at that time, at the time of that same king, there will be an unprecedented time of trouble for Israel, deliverance, and then resurrection. So those first verses of Daniel 12, they clearly occur around the time of the second coming of Jesus. And so the king we're going to talk about today in verses uh, 36 through 45 has to be someone who is in power at that time. This is that final terrible ruler who has appeared several other times in Daniel. Um, We might use that to keep it simple. We could use that term from 1 John and maybe call him the Antichrist Remember, we had a lesson called, what does the Bible say about the Antichrist that you could go back to? That king brings together many nations against Israel, causes unprecedented suffering for the people of God, but then Jesus will defeat him. He will be the last dominant world ruler before Jesus comes again. And what we've learned is the prophecies in Daniel seem to always somehow end up with him. I mean, they end up with Jesus defeating him. But in terms of the earthly kingdoms, they seem to always lead up to this guy and then Jesus and his kingdom. So our text today gives us some details about that final ruler. Why? Well, to prepare Israel and to prepare all of us to live under lots of terrible rulers, even possibly the final terrible ruler, but ultimately to help us love Jesus more. So uh, our passage today is very complicated for two reasons. First, it's describing future events. The last section that we studied in Daniel was future to Daniel, but past to us. And so we can go look at external history and get a much better understanding of what verses 2 through 35 describe. But once you get into verses 36 through 45, somewhere in here we switch to where we're talking about events that are future to Daniel and future to us. And so now we don't have the benefit of hindsight any longer And it's very hard to know what some of these things are talking about until they happen and we see them. The second reason why this is complicated is because there are so many other Bible prophecies that might connect to these verses. And we can't possibly get into that. That's the kind of thing you'd study in like a Bible college or seminary class on prophecy. Um, But I do want to give you just a brief overview of those passages. Of course, you can go read them um, on your own. But here's a summary 
of some other passages that might connect to the end of Daniel 11. Jeremiah chapter 30 says that Israel will face a time of distress so great that there is none like it. Yet Israel will be saved out of it, including breaking his yoke. And there's no explanation of who he is, but someone's yoke is broken from off their neck. Ezekiel 36 and 37, when Israel has been desolate and crushed from all sides, God will regather them from the nations, make them holy, make them alive by the Spirit, and let them dwell in their land with one king and one sanctuary. And then the next chapter is in Ezekiel. God will bring a great army from the north against his people, then personally defeat Gog and his armies on the mountains of Israel and pour out his Spirit upon Israel, restoring their fortunes in their own land. Joel the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, God will gather all the nations for war in the valley of Jehoshaphat. He will judge them on behalf of his people Israel and dwell with his holy people forever. Zechariah 12 and 13, all the nations of the earth will gather against Jerusalem, but God will destroy them. And on that day, Israel will look on me, on him whom they have pierced and weep bitterly over him. A fountain will be opened to cleanse Israel from their sin, and all idolatry will be removed. And then in the next chapter, Zechariah 14 again says that all the nations will gather against Jerusalem. The Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, splitting it in two. Israel will flee, and the Lord will come with his holy ones. Living water will flow. The Lord will be king over all the earth, and Israel will dwell in security as God strikes down those who attacked her. Then those who survive from the other nations will come to worship the Lord at Jerusalem. Then ahead to the New Testament in Matthew 24, Jesus described a future abomination of desolation, a future great tribulation, then the coming of the Son of Man and the gathering of the elect. 2 Thessalonians 2 says that the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him won't come until first there is a rebellion and the revelation of a satanic man of lawlessness who is also a son of destruction. He will proclaim himself to be God in the temple until Jesus kills him. And then, of course, Revelation 12 through 19, a very brief summary of that. Satan will attack Israel together with a horrible blasphemous beast who will join him in that attack. There will be a great slaughter outside the city, terrible plagues and bowls of God's wrath and many martyrs. Many kings will gather against the Lamb at Armageddon, but he will conquer them. Babylon the Great, which has dominion over the kings of the earth, will fall. There will be great rejoicing in heaven and a marriage supper of the Lamb with his people. Christ will come, strike down all nations, capture the beast, and throw him into the lake of fire. That is a lot. That is sober. It is sad. It is hopeful. And it's also really challenging to take all those passages and like collate them together, especially when we're talking about things that haven't happened yet. And so that's why Christians have ended up disagreeing a lot about Bible prophecy because of our disagreements about those things. But our goal this morning is to look at Daniel eleven thirty six through 45, We're trying to understand the message of Daniel, so we're going to try to look carefully at what this text says. I'm just going to briefly note possible connections, and then we're going to ask, what should we learn from this? So let's begin in verse 36. Remember, though, that verses 21 through 35 
describe the reign of this Greek ruler, Antiochus IV. He was one of the kings of the north, the Seleucid Empire, the region of Syria. He reigned from 175 to 164 B.C., and he tried to completely wipe out Judaism. Verse 36 says, And the king shall do as he wills. So the question is, is it still talking about Antiochus IV? And here we would just say maybe, maybe not. He did whatever he wanted in Jerusalem for a while, so that fits. In the big picture, he was very weakened politically. Remember the circle in the sand that the Roman consul drew for him? Uh, So the beginning of verse 36 could describe him, maybe not. If we keep reading in verse 36, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, that doesn't fit Antiochus IV very well. He was arrogant, and he was blasphemous, but he also paid a lot of attention to the Greek gods. When he set up the abomination of desolation in the temple, he was dedicating the temple to Zeus. It's well known that, you know, he made those coins that we archaeologists have found that called him Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. But you know who was on the back of the coin? Zeus. So it's not true that Antiochus paid no attention to the gods of his fathers. Um, so this just doesn't fit him very well. So I, I don't want to get bogged down going through every phrase of this passage asking, does this fit Antiochus IV or not? A few things fit, most do not. And when you get down to verses 40 through 45, the battles it describes and the end of Antiochus that it describes just don't fit him. I mean, it's not, he's not named Antiochus. It wouldn't fit Antiochus at all. It's not him by the end of this passage. So at some point, probably in verse 36, the text begins to look ahead to a terrible future ruler. And if you understand it that way, then the things the text describes fit very well with what the New Testament says about that terrible future ruler, like 2 Thessalonians 2.4. The man of lawlessness opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's not Antiochus. That's a future terrible ruler. So because it seems like the end of this chapter is talking about a final terrible ruler, Bible scholars dig really deeply into this to try to get clues about what the Antichrist will be like. So uh, every one of these phrases gets dissected, but it's hard to be definitive about the conclusions because we haven't seen it yet. So, for example, um, the beginning of verse 37 says, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. So there is a huge debate about whether that means the Antichrist will be Jewish or not. And based on that phrase, what we can say is it's possible, but not certain. Uh, We'll see. Uh, The next phrase in verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the one beloved by women. Is that some God that women particularly worship? 
Is that possibly talking about the Messiah? We can't know for sure. We can guess. Same thing with the next phrase in verse 38. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. Who's the God of fortresses? Um, Well, again, we're talking about events in the future, so I don't know. Maybe it means that he worships military might or something like that. Verse 38 continues, A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Who's that God? Is it the God of fortresses? Is it some other God? Um, I don't think we're going to know until it happens. Verse 39, He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. That just sounds like politics, right? Uh, He's just a good masterful politician who knows how to get people to be loyal to him. Verse 40, at the time of the end. So as you reach the end of his kingdom, the end of the last great earthly kingdom, then verse 40 says, The king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him. And here we've got another couple phrases that are, that are, there's huge debate about in Bible prophecy circles. The question is, are there two kings there or three? Is the Antichrist the king of the north who gets attacked by the king of the south? Or is the Antichrist in the middle and there's a different king of the north and king of the south who both uh, attack him? And uh, I certainly don't know the answer. I tend to think that the Antichrist is the king of the north here. Um, But again, I apologize for being a broken record, but we'll know when it happens. (laughs) Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him. I would understand that to be the king of the south. He attacks back like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. So there's obviously a sequence of battles there. The final terrible ruler seems to be very successful in those battles. And then he once again comes into the glorious land into Israel. He returns to Israel. Remember all the passages I talked about just a couple minutes ago that refer to God gathering the nations to Jerusalem. This may be the beginning of that. Verse 41 continues, and tens of thousands shall fall. He will kill many people, many tens of thousands, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. That is a really interesting line just it's hard to figure out what it means. Those were ancient people groups that lived in areas around Israel. So what does it mean that they'll be delivered out of his hand? Um, probably the best guess that scholars have about that is that in, in Matthew and Revolution, Revelation, <laughs> Revolution, in Matthew and Revelation, there's this reference to the, the Jews who flee from the Antichrist and are protected from his wrath. It, it Maybe verse 41 is talking about those the regions where they flee to, um, but I don't know. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries 
and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So the king of the north defeats the king of the south, apparently. Verse 43, he shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. He becomes more and more wealthy. And what you see here is he's starting to gather more people to be with him. After lots of conflict, now there seems to maybe be a a gathering of people together with him. Yet, verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. There's a reference in Revelation to the Euphrates River being dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Maybe that's connected to this. But regardless, some news from the east and the north of Israel alarm the terrible ruler. And so verse 44 continues, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Maybe he's going out against other armies, or maybe this is part of his assault on Israel and persecution of Israel. Verse 45, And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. He sets up camp, probably this is meaning between the Mediterranean and Jerusalem, which would be the the holy mountain in the Old Testament. So this may be describing some gathering of the nations. It's a little complicated because there seems to be conflict between nations, and yet at the same time a gathering of the nations together around this final terrible ruler not in Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean. Um, Zechariah 13 talks about this, this gathering of the nations to try to defeat Jerusalem, which may be the same thing. And it says that it will lead to a horrible suffering for Jerusalem with maybe two-thirds of the people dying and one-third of them being protected. But none of that is described here in Daniel. And we're not certain if those puzzle pieces fit together. It just says, verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents. There's some kind of encampment outside of Jerusalem toward the Mediterranean Sea. And then we get the point, verse 45. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. It's pretty abrupt, isn't it? That doesn't necessarily mean that he comes to his end right then while he's in camp between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean, because at the beginning of chapter 12, I think he's, he's still alive. So this isn't like necessarily trying to give you the chronology of exactly when he dies. It's trying to give you the point. The point is that he comes to his end and there's nobody to help him, despite the fact that he seems to be successfully getting the whole world rallied to his side. He shall come to his end with none to help him. So it's, we're, we're trying to like envision this terrible scene when a terrible ruler who has the power to do whatever he wants and who hates the Jewish people in faith, he comes with great fury and great destruction and he sets up his camp outside Jerusalem. It's kind of like the ultimate nightmare for the Jewish people. And so God reveals to Daniel what they need to know about that. He's going to come to his end with no one to help him. That's what you need to know. The most powerful ruler in human history loses. 
the most powerful empire in human history, loses. Last week, we talked about the futility of human politics. The greatest rulers, the greatest empires are only on top for a little while, and then God brings them down. But it will look like this last great empire and this last great ruler are the exception. It will look like finally the Tower of Babel is going to succeed. Mankind is going to do it. We're going to get so sophisticated, so technological, so brought together around, coalesced around one ruler with so much power and so many signs and wonders and the devil pulling out every trick in his book. And it's going to look like here's the moment when man finally brings God down. This ruler will be, it will be like all of the evils of human emperors and empires coalesce in this one despicable person. And all of the, it's like he's the worst of all human rulers all rolled up into one. And he gets all the power of all the earthly empires, plus all the signs and wonders of Satan. Yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. That's what you need to know. There you go. That's Daniel eleven thirty six through 45. It's a bunch of things we're really not going to know about for sure until they happen, though we can make some connections to other passages, and it's worth seeking to do that and, and, and understand what God has revealed. And in the end, verse 45 tells us the point. One final terrible ruler, and he comes to his end, and there's nobody to help him. Though he's got the whole world to help him, it won't do him any good. So what do we learn from that, that passage? I mean, there are lots of general principles here that we've seen lots of times in Daniel. The godless characteristics of human rulers, the hatred for God's people, the promised land as a battleground. It's been a bad week for headlines in Israel, hasn't it? The reality of persecution, the necessity of faithfulness. Um, these are all themes we've seen over and over again because this passage, like all of Daniel, is preparing us to live under terrible world rulers until Jesus comes again. Dale Ralph Davis writes, It's as if the Lord says to us, You must be prepared. In the world you have tribulation, but don't think too much of the tribulator. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying, he will be easily disposed of. That should put steel in our bones in case we have to face the final scourge of history. Steel in your bones from knowing that he's actually easily disposed of, as terrifying as he appears to be. So those are all themes that we've seen in other places in Daniel. There's also an underlying theme here of God's faithfulness to his promises. That's a theme we started with right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. Verse 45 ends the way it does because nothing will stop God from keeping his promises to his people. As Nebuchadnezzar said, no one can stay God's hand. No one can grab God's hand and stop him from keeping his promises. That puts more steel in our bones. But then I think the best conclusion from verses 36 through 45 comes when we ask at the end of verse 45, who does this? Who can easily dispose of the tribulator? 
part of that answer is in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Michael is a tremendously powerful angel, yet he is a created being who needs the assistance of Gabriel and an army of angels, so he's not the ultimate answer. He's part of whom God uses. What we're supposed to do is read Daniel 11.45, wonder to ourselves who could do this, and then think earlier in Daniel. And remember Daniel chapter 2, which foretold a stone not cut out by any human hand, a ruler that doesn't arise from any earthly dynasty, any earthly, any, any earthly empire. He's come from somewhere else, not produced by man, yet he pulverizes all the kingdoms of the earth. That's got to be the one who can bring the final terrible ruler to his end, and we know that the stone is Christ. So we're supposed to think back to Daniel 2. We're also supposed to think back to Daniel 7, which describes the trial scene of the final terrible ruler as he stands before the Ancient of Days. But in that same scene, the very next scene, is the king appointed by God who receives an eternal kingdom and rules the entire world forever. And again, as we look back, we know that that Son of Man and Son of God crowned at the throne room of, of God, that's Jesus. He's the one who can defeat the final terrible ruler. Jesus himself said, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Revelation 10, I want to describe, I mean, Revelation 19, I want to describe, I want to read the paragraph in Revelation 19 that describes the second coming of Jesus, but it's interesting. Do you know what phrase comes right before that? It's a phrase I read us last Sunday. It is, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19, verse 10 the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then... 2 Thessalonians gives it to us in one sentence. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's a pretty good summary. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and then Jesus comes and he's gone. So we should read Daniel 11.45 and ask who? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus. 
the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me back up and explain um, part of how we think of the Scriptures in relation to Jesus. After His resurrection, Jesus walked on that road to Emmaus with those two disciples, and He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Later, He appeared to more of His disciples, telling them that everything written about Him in all the Hebrew Scriptures must be fulfilled. When the Jews were seeking to kill Him for claiming to be equal with God, He told them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. And so, sometimes the Scriptures point to Jesus very directly. Jesus is the stone in Daniel 2, and He's the Son of Man, crowned King in Daniel 7. He's the Prince of Princes in Daniel 8. He's the Anointed One who's cut off in Daniel 9. He's the Offspring of the Woman, promised in Genesis 3. He's the Lamb whom God Himself provides in Genesis 22. He's the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. He's the shepherd in Psalm 23. He's the suffering Savior in Isaiah 53. Very, very end of the Old Testament, he's the son of righteousness who arises with healing in its wings in Malachi chapter 4. All over you can find these ways in which Scripture points directly to Jesus. But then there are many, many other ways in which the Scripture points to Jesus indirectly or through contrast. All of the weak priests in the Old Testament who, who have to offer sacrifices for their own sins point us to Jesus as the perfect and eternal high priest. All the shepherds who eat the flock instead of caring for it point us to Jesus as our great shepherd. You have these judges like Samson and Gideon who win great victories for Israel, yet they can't control their own hearts, their own lusts, their own families. You have generals like Joab who win great victories and then do terrible things. You have men of great faith like Abraham and Jacob who could believe God in the face of insurmountable odds and then fail to trust God with some of the simplest things. <clears throat> you have courageous leaders like Noah and Moses who could stand firm against the pressures of a whole nation or a whole culture, yet they couldn't stand firm against some of their own sinful temptations. You have prophets like Jonah or Elijah who could set their face like a flint and proclaim God's truth no matter what and then collapse into selfishness or despair. Even the New Testament disciples who could be fiercely loyal to Jesus one moment and embarrassingly dull and disloyal the next. There is no book in all the religions of the world that is so blunt about the failures of all its best people. That's because when you have a Savior as marvelous as Jesus, you don't have to play the game that every politician plays today, which is never admit failure, never admit you're wrong, always pretend perfection. What a joke. The Bible can be so honest about human weakness and failure because the hope of the Bible is not in human perfection, but in Jesus. Every word of the Bible calls us to love and follow Jesus. He's the great high priest and shepherd and judge and general and leader and friend. And our point this morning is that Jesus is the one great and ultimate emperor, ruler, king, and Lord. And so along that general pattern I just laid out for us, the Bible follows that same pattern in pointing us to Jesus. It points to Jesus in direct prophecies, like those made to David about an eternal king or Psalm 2. It points to or those are direct promises. Then there are direct prophecies like Daniel 7 about the coronation of King Jesus. 
Then we're pointed to Jesus through the good kings of Israel and Judah. They're like a a shadow, a, a little echo of what King Jesus will be like. They were sinners who failed, but there were parts of their rule that show us what a good ruler is like. And then there are all those terrible kings of Israel and Judah who show us how badly we need King Jesus. And then finally, the Bible points us to the kingship of Jesus indirectly through a passage like Daniel 11, which portray for us the terrible rulers of this world leaning up to one final terrible ruler. And so as you see the pattern of those terrible rulers and what they will be like, and as we see that it's true, as we look at the rulers and the human governments across history and today, all of that points us to Jesus who is perfectly good. By contrast, rulers are often unjust. Jesus is just. Rulers often let the guilty go free. Jesus never does. Rulers often convict the innocent. Jesus never does. Rulers are susceptible to bribes. Jesus already owns it all, so he just laughs. Rulers are often selfish. Jesus lays down the glory of heaven to come to earth and lay down his life for the sheep. He did not come to be served, but to serve. The one true public servant in all of history. Pure public servant. Rulers are often liars. Jesus is the truth. Rulers often mislead people. Jesus is the way. Rulers are often foolish. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Rulers often enslave. Jesus sets people free. Rulers often kill. Jesus gives life. Rulers often ignore the weak and vulnerable, take advantage of them. Jesus comes to them. Rulers are often exhausting. Jesus is nourishing. Rulers are often frightening. Jesus is peace and comfort. Rulers are often harsh. Jesus is gentle. Rulers are often cowardly. Jesus is perfect courage. Rulers usually offer pardons when it's politically or personally beneficial for them. Jesus freely offers pardons to anyone who will come because he paid the just penalty for our sin himself. Rulers promise heaven on earth if you'll just sell them your soul. Jesus creates new heavens and new earth. What I'm saying is that the whole Bible points us to Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The Bible points to many aspects of who Jesus is, judge, warrior, friend, prophet, priest, and so forth. One of those is king. The Bible points to Jesus directly and indirectly, sometimes by contrast. And so surely at the end of Daniel chapter 11, when you see the anti Christ, you're supposed to see Christ via contrast. The reign of Jesus is the complete opposite of the horrible reign of this last ruler. The character of Jesus is the opposite of the character of that last ruler. And all Jesus has to do is appear and he brings him to nothing. The mere breath of Jesus' mouth kills him. So let's bring it down to this. What do you do when you see news about a bad ruler? Have you ever been frustrated by any headlines about something a leader did? Maybe a mayor, maybe a governor, maybe a president, 
maybe a congressman who is lying, embezzling, enacting terrible laws, being unjust, tearing down our country, attacking others, misleading his base, mistreating the vulnerable. What do you do when you see that kind of news? Well, of course, we're going to be upset, rightfully. Of course, we're going to grieve, rightfully. We may well take action if there are things we can do, like vote. But there's something else you should do. You should worship Jesus because Jesus isn't like that. You can look at the news about really bad rulers and respond with worship because your King Jesus isn't like that. And I love how global this is. One of the ways you can know if, we're, if you're handling Bible prophecy correctly is if what you're saying about it would make sense anywhere around the world. You could be living in a country like some of the countries in Africa where there is a terrible corruption in the government and you could worship Jesus because of it. You could be living in a country where there's a dictator, there's a tyrant, and those heartbreaking realities can turn your heart to worship Jesus. You can be living in a place where there's a lazy, selfish leader who just lives for his own pleasure and doesn't pay any attention to the needs of his country, and you could respond with worship. You could hypothetically be living in California where our leaders seem to be so often intent on flipping upside down everything that is good and right. And even those very headlines can point your heart right to Jesus. In my journal, I've recently... So when I start journaling each day, I try to just not filter it and just write whatever's on my mind. And oftentimes recently, I've been finding that I write about something that I realize is, is frustrating me or disappointing me or whatever, but I haven't prayed about it yet. And so I switch pen colors and I write in all caps, pray, and I stop and pray. The journaling reminds me of what I'm failing to pray about. And, and so similarly, I'm just using that as a kind of a visual illustration. In a similar way, when you come across the difficult and disappointing and fearful news about the governments of the world, the political powers whom you live under, you can respond with all caps praise to Jesus. You don't have to journal. That's not my point. The point is, don't just keep staring at the problem, the bad ruler, the bad news. In your heart, switch pen colors, go to all caps, and write praise. Turn the bad headlines into a moment of worship to King Jesus. Have you ever looked at an earthly ruler and said, Now look at that magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. How awesome would it be if you did have a ruler you could say that about? Wouldn't that be a pretty good kingdom to live in? The kind of ruler where you could be confident that every law, every executive order, Every emergency declaration, every leadership decision is absolutely perfectly wise and just and full of love for you. And so every decision you could be, even if you didn't agree with it or understand it, you could be confident in it. Man, what a great kingdom that would be. I would love to live in that kind of kingdom. got it, right? You do. Yeah, you're stuck in this earthly kingdom, but you've got another kingdom 
and he already made you citizens. He already took you out of the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 2. You're already in that kingdom. So after you pull out your pen, switch colors, go to all caps and praise Jesus in light of the headlines about terrible rulers, then the next really smart thing to do would be to say, oh, right, I'm citizen of another kingdom. How could I live as a kingdom citizen today? Like, what would that ruler have me to do? If my ruler in that kingdom is characterized by magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, then what I'd love to know today is what he would have me to do. This is a little counterintuitive because I get it. We live in a state where whatever our governor wants us to do, we probably don't want to do. That's the reality we're living under right now, right? His agenda for us is so godless that we're used to looking at our rulers and thinking, I don't know what you're saying, but I probably don't want to hear it, which is hard when God calls us to submit to human governments. It's tricky, I know. But we've got to make sure that we remember that when we switch to Jesus, we have switched to an entirely different kind of ruler where you're actually like, tell me what you want me to do. What would you have me to do? How could I be the best citizen of this kingdom today? How could I make sure that he is Lord of my life today? See, here's one way to think about the coming of the final terrible ruler. Why is earth's last great ruler the worst? It's because human autonomy, when we all seek to live in our own freedom with no one telling us what to do, leads to only one thing in human government. And what is it? Tyranny. Autonomy always leads to tyranny. However, when hearts submit to King Jesus, it leads not to tyranny, but to actual freedom. True freedom. What would you have me to do today, Jesus? How could you be Lord of my life today, Jesus? Live like a kingdom citizen of that other kingdom even while we wrestle with how to live as citizens of these earthly kingdoms. And you know, this, I did not, this did not cross my mind until last night, but I realized that if we do not give our lives to Jesus, in the end, verse 45 could be said about us too. He shall come to his end with no one to help him. All the things of the world will do us no good in the end. If we have not given our lives to Jesus, verse 45 will not only be true about the Antichrist, but about everyone who has rejected Christ. So worship the greater king, love the greater king, obey the greater king, serve the greater king. And in the end, even when all of creation unravels, Jesus will be there to help you. He will be holding on to you. And even the world's worst emperors and empires won't be able to pluck you out of his hand. What a savior. What a friend. What a king. So let's go live for that king today. Could you say in your heart, Jesus, what would you have me to do today? I want to give you just a moment to pray on your own. And if your heart can willingly say that, 
joyfully look to the king of magnificent, marvelous, matchless love and say, what would you have me to do? Would you just take a minute and pray that right now? How can I live with you as my Lord today? And then I'll close this in prayer and tell you what's going to come next.